0: Today's episode is brought to you by, in 1947, 25-year-old Edith Eade was working as a secretary at RKO Pictures. Uh, You might remember them for films such as Citizen Kane. She was recently out of the closet and had a lot of free time at her job, although her boss encouraged her to look like she was busy. While she did have a small group of lesbian friends, mostly ones who also lived in her apartment building, she wanted to expand her social circle. Her solution? starting her own lesbian magazine, and what happened to be the first gay or lesbian publication of its type, which she called Vice Versa and published under the pseudonym Lisa Bin, which is a clever anagram of lesbian. In her words, I was by myself and I wanted to be able to meet others like me. I couldn't go down the street saying I'm looking for lesbian friends. Vice Versa gave me a way of reaching out to other gay girls, a way of getting to know other gals. When I had something to hand out and when I tried to talk girls into writing for my magazine, I no longer had any trouble going up to new people. Every month, she would type five carbon paper versions and one original version of Vice Versa, creating 12 copies total. At first, she'd give a few copies to her friends and left the rest in gay bars around San Francisco. She encouraged readers to pass along the magazine after they were done reading it, rather than throwing it away. It provided a way for lesbians to connect with each other through readers' letters, personal essays, short fiction, and poetry. While the first issue was 15 pages long, subsequent monthly issues were between 9 and 20 pages. Each contained a mix of editorials, short stories, poetry, book, and film reviews, as well as a letters column. This is a model many gay and lesbian publications have fashioned themselves after, whether they give credit to vice versa or not. To get an idea of what type of content was in the magazine, here's an excerpt from the issue from September of 1947. Whether the unsympathetic majority approves or not, It looks as though the third sex is here to stay. With the advancement of psychiatry and related subjects, the world is becoming more and more aware that there are those in our midst who feel no attraction for the opposite sex. It is not an uncommon sight to observe mannishly attired women or even those dressed in more feminine garb strolling along the street hand in hand or even arm in arm in an attitude which certainly would seem to indicate far more than mere friendliness. Homosexuality is becoming a less and less taboo subject. And although still considered by the general public as contemptible or treated with derision, I venture to predict that there will be a time in the future when gay folk will be accepted as part of regular society. Although scrupulous about avoiding material that could be considered dirty or risque, she stopped mailing copies after a friend advised her that she could be arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. Publications addressing homosexuality were automatically deemed obscene under the Comstock Act until 1958. This act criminalized usage of the U.S. Postal Service to send any of the following items—obscenity, contraceptives, substances that induce abortions, sex toys, personal letters with any sexual content or information, or any information regarding the above items. Lisa Benn ended up publishing only nine copies of Vice Versa, from June 1947 to February 1948, when RKO closed and she was forced to find another secretary job— one that was much busier and didn't allow her time to work on the magazine. However, she did keep her pen name, Lisa Benn, and used it once again when she started writing for The Ladder in 1955, a magazine put out by the lesbian collective Daughters of Belitis. The latter also ended up republishing some of the stories from Vice Versa. Edith Ede is, unfortunately, one of many gay pioneers who didn't receive their rightful due while they were alive. She sadly passed away in December of 2015 at the age of 94, without even a mention in an obituary. However, there is one positive aspect. When she passed, the ONE National Gay and Lesbian Archives in Los Angeles acquired her personal collection of papers and photographs. Included was a complete set of Vice Versa. So if you ever get a chance to visit the ONE Archives, you should definitely take a look at this important piece of gay history. And welcome to Out of History. It just means that we can walk the streets as ourselves and not be harassed by anybody, just be ourselves. Be proud to be ourselves. I think we need a radically new definition of what it means to be masculine. It's a pretty fucked up society when the army gives me a medal And hi, welcome back to another episode of Out of History. Of course, I don't know exactly where you're listening from, but I'm sure wherever you're living, it's definitely a different world than the last time you listened to an episode. And I'll I'll admit, the world is pretty scary right now. So I hope this episode can give you a short reprieve from everything going on around you. If you will, Let's escape from 2020 for a moment and instead envelop ourselves in the rich world of 1960s Britain. London, in particular, was ready to be done with the gloom of post-Second World War austerity and embrace a new type of existence filled with color, optimism, and culture. The streets were filled with psychedelia, mods, rockers, thigh-grazing miniskirts, protest, and sexual liberation. So basically the opening piece to Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery. In the midst of all of this was a British musical legend ready to unravel the societal norms of what a female singer could do and be, Irish icon Dusty Springfield. Now, if the name doesn't immediately ring a bell, her music definitely will. You've most likely heard at least one of these hit songs, uh, I Only Want to Be With You, uh, Wishing and Hopin', and of course son of a preacher man. Also, if you happen to do a Google image search, you will notice famed drag queen Roxy Andrews 100% models her look after Dusty Springfield. And I don't know if she's confirmed this or not, but you'll see what I mean when you see what Dusty Springfield looks like. So let's talk briefly about how she got her start. Before the age of 15, she was a mousy teenager at St. Anne's Convent School in Ealing with short auburn hair and thick glasses. After her first blues performance in a school assembly, she decided to shed her mousy attire and look, which if you're wondering exactly how mousy, at the time, most of her schoolmates believed she'd grow up to be a librarian. So this is your quintessential 90s nerd girl takes off her glasses and she's gorgeous because she shocked school friends a year later when she appeared as a glamorous and fully made up platinum blonde with high heels and vampish makeup. Mary O'Brien, she said, wasn't going to make it. After performing for a few years with an all girl singing trio called the Lana Sisters, Dusty teamed up with her brothers Dion and a family friend Tim to start a group called Springfields. And they produced a fresh, upbeat, folksy pop sound. And the siblings gave themselves new stage names to suit. With heavy eye makeup, colorful frocks, and a platinum blonde beehive, Mary shed her suburban roots and adopted a glamorous new public persona. Dusty Springfield. In 1962, the Springfields toured the United States. There, she had her first taste of Motown groups and Stack Singers. And I have never been to Motown, but I have been to Stack Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, and I have to say it is extremely cool. And if you ever have a chance, you should definitely check out either one of those studios. It's a very awesome part of musical history. She was instantly enamored with the music and singers she saw and heard. Girl groups like the Ronettes, the Crystals, and the Chiffons provided inspiration in the way of their boundless vitality, simple sentiments, and finger-snapping melodies. The next year... This new Dusty Springfield with these new influences embarked on a solo career and released her debut album, A Girl Called Dusty, which, like her future work, was deeply indebted to the Black American soul she heard on her first American tour. From the start, she electrified the British pop scene, and by the mid-1960s, she was heralded as one of the best voices ever in British pop. While overseas, where Southern soul music was stirring America, she became a leading player alongside the Black female superstars stars of the era. And this was just the beginning of her stardom. Basically, she was like the proto version of Adele, is what I'm saying. By 1966, she had achieved more hit records than any other artist, but she was somebody who was always striving for perfection, and that included how she looked. She ended up getting a nose job at the London clinic, And she was always late because it took three hours to apply her iconic makeup. And this sort of behavior often stretched the music business of the 60s to their limits. This was unfortunately exacerbated by her issues and problems with drugs and alcohol, which only got worse as her fame rose. Her drinking would often lead to erratic behavior. And some of this can be chalked up to a wacky sense of humor or just being a little bit quirky. Like she would enjoy reading maps and would intentionally get lost to navigate her way out. Or she would occasionally uh, throw toilet paper all over people's houses, which I did when I was a teenager. But then some of her other behavior was just downright mean. Uh, She would send out for bowls of crockery, which she would then systematically smash against a wall. She liked to tip bags of flour over the heads of her bandmates. Um, She flung food in restaurants. She threw all of her furniture into her swimming pool. This led to her being hospitalized several times for self-harm by cutting herself, and she was eventually, thankfully, diagnosed with bipolar disorder. In addition to this erratic behavior, there was another aspect of Dusty Springfield, which set her apart from other singers at the time, the lack of a husband, boyfriend, or other male lover. And this situation wasn't lost on interviewers, who often referred to her as a bachelor girl. Finally, Dusty committed an act of bravery during a 1970 interview with Ray Connolly of the London Evening Standard, which, in response to one of his questions, she said, A lot of people say that I'm bent, and I've heard it so many times that I've almost learned to accept it. I know I'm perfectly capable of being swayed by a girl as by a boy. More and more, people feel that way, and I don't see why I shouldn't. Three years later, she explained to Chris Van Ness of the Los Angeles Free Press. I mean, people say that I'm gay, 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 gay. I'm not anything. I'm just people are people. I basically want to be straight. I go from men to women. I don't give a shit. The catchphrase is, I can't love a man. Now that's my hang up. To love, to go to bed, fantastic. But to love a man is my prime ambition. They frighten me. This last statement seems to confirm what one of Dusty's girlfriends, Norma Tanega, said about her. Dusty wanted to be straight, and she wanted to be a good Catholic, and she wanted to be black. Dusty clearly struggled with her sexuality and frequently mentioned to others regretting doing the first interview with Ray Connolly because it led to comments and speculation for the rest of her life. Unfortunately, Dusty operated at a time when being gay was career poison. So instead of succeeding and thriving, she went to pieces. The industry was so homophobic and sexist, being a lesbian was considered awful and shocking. Springfield's honesty came at a cost. Throughout the 70s, her popularity waned, and she didn't have another hit single for over 15 years. And yes, I didn't misspeak before when I said girlfriend. While Dusty seemed afraid to commit to the idea of being a full-blown lesbian, she only ever had relationships with women. From late 1972 to 1978, Springfield had an on-and-off domestic relationship with Faye Harris, a U.S. photojournalist. She was linked to singer Carol Pope from the rock band Rough Trade in 1981. Then, in 1982, she married actress Tita Brashy, which she met at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Their wedding was a beautiful affair in California, with Dusty displaying her usual camp. She wore a full-length white gown bought from a local charity shop with long lace gloves and a three-foot veil, clutching a delicate posy of flowers. A satin Stetson hat covered her big, rockside blonde beehive, and a heavy dash of mascara ensured that her dark-rimmed eyes looked as striking as ever. By contrast, Tita sported a black velvet suit, accessorized with a dashing bright red necktie. When guests were asked whether there were any objections to the marriage, each member of the party raised their hands in jest, even Dusty. And though the wedding wasn't legally recognized, they lived together for two years. And the pair had a tempestuous relationship, which led to an altercation with both Dusty and Tita hospitalized. Springfield had been smashed in the mouth by Brashy wielding a saucepan and had teeth knocked out, which required plastic surgery. Tita ended up going to jail for the incident since she was a repeat offender and Dusty got the cheapest plastic surgery available so she could spend the rest on drugs. Yeah, even though she technically was sober since she wasn't drinking alcohol at the time, the two of them did meet at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, Dusty was doing a ton of drugs at this time, and this was technically her rock bottom. However, in the late 80s, Dusty got a lifeline in the form of doing a song with the Pet Shop Boys. And if you're an 80s new wave kid like i am then i'm sure you love the pet shop boys and if you're not i mean come on go west what a fucking great song even if you don't necessarily like new wave go west just like it gets you pumped so dusty received an invitation to perform a duet with their lead singer neil Tennant on the single What Have I Done to Deserve This. The album Dusty in Memphis was one of Tennant's favorite when he was growing up, so he jumped at the chance to perform a song with this iconic legend. And the single ended up rising to number two on both the US and UK charts. After the success of this song, Dusty left California. And other than recording tracks for Reputation, her 1990s studio album, she returned to the UK to live permanently. In 1993, she recorded a duet with her former 1960s professional rival and friend, Scylla Black. In October, Heart and Soul was released as a single, and in September, it had appeared on Black's album through the years. Springfield's next album, provisionally titled Dusty in Nashville, was started in 1993 with producer Tom Shapiro. But was issued as A Very Fine Love in June 1995. Though originally intended by Shapiro as a country music album, the track selection by Springfield pushed the album into pop music with an occasional country feel, which, if she had released it 20 years later, it would have been extremely popular. Needless to say, Dusty was prepared for a renaissance but a recurrence of breast cancer in 1994 stopped her in her tracks. To the end though, Springfield remained unapologetic in the way she underlined her identity, refusing to conform to the music industry's expectations of how a great diva should behave. It's a long time since being a star was the most important thing to me, she said at the time. I don't need to be adored to hear that applause. If I never heard it again, I would still be fine. Dusty Springfield endures as a cultural icon of the swinging 60s, where she was an instantly recognizable celebrity. In public and on stage, Springfield developed a joyful image supported by her peroxide blonde bouffant, evening gowns, exuberant hand gestures, and heavy makeup that included her much-copied hand-to-eye mascara. By the 1990s, she had also become a camp icon, as her ultra-glamorous look and And emotive vocal performances gained her a powerful and enduring following in the gay community, who stood by her throughout her struggles with drugs, alcohol, and coming to terms with her own sexuality. So, that is the heartbreaking, tragic, but still hopeful story of Dusty Springfield, a woman who. Despite her own struggles and despite what she considered her own shortcomings, she still never quit truly being herself. And that is to be admired, despite instances of her behavior. And I think we could all learn something from somebody who dared to be so powerful and flamboyant in everything they did, especially performances. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out of History. If you'd like to see more, you can always follow me on Instagram at outofhistory.podcast or you can shoot me an email if you'd like to know more about this episode or if you have any suggestions for further episodes at outofqueerhistory at gmail.com. And of course, please stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, and stay a respectable distance from people. Now is not the time to play fast and loose with your own safety. And I hope you will join me next time for another exploration of the history they tried to bury. And don't forget, you're creating your own history every day. So make it a good one. We'll see you next time. And that in hopes that someday there'll be no need to demonstrate the right to make love to anybody you want, any way you want, where well, you got to start somewhere.